I am excited uh, to be here and to, to talk to you guys, uh, to share kind of the things that God's put on my heart, uh, I think, uh, for the church here and for, for the area in certain ways. This isn't something I do a lot of. Um, kind of as Tom said, I, I am part of a leadership team in which we plant churches, uh, help to establish those churches, uh, train leaders, and because of that, it keeps us kind of busy in-house about... I think it was about 10 years ago now or so, I just felt like God shift what I was supposed to do to really focus on trying to help build a group of solid foundational churches that hopefully like look like the New Testament and express the purpose of God in our generation. And so I actually pulled back um, from all traveling. And so I, it's really rare that I go anywhere or travel to speak anywhere on the way down. In fact, Eric was saying, why exactly did you say you'd come to this? You know, because we have nothing negative on you guys, but it's just something we don't, I just don't do and we don't do much of. And, um, and a lot of that, to be honest with you, is, is because of the connection I feel with Tom and uh, with Stephen as well, um, between the, even though the generational thing there, uh, which I'm going to bring up in a minute, there's just a sense of feeling God's hand on their lives and in what's going to be happening uh, here and what they're doing. Um, I don't know why. I mean, you've met them. They're not all that great, but, um, <laughs> but I do just feel a sense of significance uh, in it. And just, just because it was he who he asked, I said, yeah, I mean, I'll definitely happy to come um, and do that. And so because of that, I just be honest with you, with my speaking, I, I'm used to speaking to our groups of churches. I mean, I've, I've taken maybe one other trip this last year. I went to South Charleston, South Carolina. Um, maybe that's because our winters are awful and I just wanted to go south. But, uh, but really, it was because we have a friendship with the church there that's trying to come into some New Testament paradigms of building. And so I went there to try to help them uh, think through some things and to teach in the church. Um, and, you know, within... I'm used to kind of speaking to our churches and the way that we build. So what I'm going to do this morning and the way I talk to you is very much speak from the perspective of, of how I would in a church if this is slightly at moments in time uh, theologically different than you or things to challenge by. Well, I'm great. I'm happy to dialogue. I think that's always helpful for all of us. Um, I, but I'm not as... Like I was listening to Steve last night and he's just so good at just kind of reaching every audience that's out there, you know, like this, you know, I, I um, you know, saying a profound truth. I don't know if you guys realized this last night. I mean, he probably knows this, but he was saying some pretty big things in really simple ways. You know, I mean, he was like, you just, we were introduced to the ontology debate and the whole concept of the knowledge of God with John Zizelos and Miroslav Volf and this whole theological discussion. And I don't even know that he, I mean, I don't know if you've read those guys or not, but he's just like saying it in a way that is so great and so simple. And it, it was amazing, actually. Um, at several points, he pulled out, you know, kind of Jonathan Edwards' points about uh, the glory of God. But I'm like, That's, he just said it so well. So I thought he did fantastic last night, Steve. I was, it was great, but... But he also just, you can tell he's experienced in, in speaking in multiple audiences. So, um, so if I offend you a little bit, I'm sorry on the front end. Can I just say that? Um, I'm slightly sarcastic, which is itself a sarcastic comment because um, I'm actually really sarcastic. Um, but I'll try to taper it a little bit. I, uh, within our churches, we, we have a lot of young people, uh, a lot of 20s and 30s, and so we spend a lot of our time in those kind of settings, and so it, it is very much kind of more of a casual communication style. But, um, but I am happy to be here, um, happy to be able to communicate some things to you. I feel like God's put some things on my heart uh, for this church and for the area, uh, as well as 
for all churches in a sense because it's just truth and the Bible applies to everybody, doesn't it? But when Tom first called, um, what I understood him to say, I don't want to put words in his mouth so he has plausible deniability later, but what I understood him to say uh, when he was talking to me is that he wanted there to be this theme of the image of God, or who God is, sorry, um, who God is and who we are, kind of in light of who God is, and what this means, uh, you know, practically for our lives, what this means for culture, what this means for building, kind of like Steve mentioned last night. And so as I started thinking and praying about things, I was wrestling between several messages, and really what that wrestle was is I felt God speaking to me about one thing, and I was trying to convince him to go another route with the other messages. Um, because the things I want to say today, I think, are, are big. You know, they're about God's whole purpose for the earth. Um, you know, we're a group of, what are we, 40 people in a room, and it just kind of feels like, wow, these are really big things to talk about. Uh, but I believe they're what the church has to come to terms with and what we have to become if we're to do what God's called us to do. Um, Jesus, and I'm no Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, but he uh, obviously even started with 12 guys and started talking to 12 guys about how they're going to change the world. That's almost an absurd thought, isn't it? <laughs> 12 guys, several which have uneducated, really not in much influence, and he starts to train them, not just in terms to live good moral lives, but to actually go into all creation and disciple all nations. That's just huge, isn't it? It's just almost absurd, except for the fact that they went about and did it. They turned the world upside down uh, because of what God, uh, of what Jesus trained them to do. And so I don't think it's absurd for any small group of Christians in any location to grab hold of the truths of Scripture and get a heart to change the world, because uh, that's what we're called to do. And I also feel, um, guys, when I, when I came in, I felt God speaking to me. Um, I know that this church here, I know, believes in the gifts of the Spirit moving in our day and age, which where I come from, we do as well. And I just felt, when the minute I walked in, I don't know a lot of the history of here, but I felt God say that he has a purpose for this church, for this group of people that were here, um, in order for them to fulfill something that is yet unfulfilled. I don't know all the history, but it was like there was a purpose that got interrupted for some reason. This is what I felt like God's saying, um, that he got interrupted, but that it doesn't necessarily cause his purpose to change, that the word still waits to be fulfilled. Um, I'm not saying that you guys sinned in any way, so please don't hear this wrong in this illustration, but it's like the people of Israel who were supposed to go into the promised land, and they, the one generation didn't. Their case, it was unbelief. Please don't apply that part to this, because I don't feel like that's what I'm trying to say here. But, but it got interrupted somehow. God's purpose didn't go forward uh, in the way that it was originally spoken about. Obviously, God knew that was going to happen, but there was this interruption in which they wandered in the desert for another generation to emerge and for that generation to fulfill it. And, and this is what I felt like God's saying in that um, is, and some of the things I'm going to say are rooted in this, I believe that God is going to raise up another generation that the purpose of God for this church is going to come into. Now, I bring that up when that immediately sounds like I'm saying, okay, all the older people go out to retirement because it's all about the... the you know, young generation, um, which is not what I mean. But one of the things that is true in the Bible is God's purposes are from one generation to the next. It's how they work. He works generationally throughout the Old Testament. We even heard it this morning. I didn't put him up to this. He just read the scripture. I will extol your virtues from one generation to the next. One generation will speak it to the other. And, and unfortunately, the church has been divided by generations. 
that we've had a generation that holds on to their way of doing things. Um, and then we have a younger generation that wants to throw off the old way of doing things and we go separate ways. One of the blessings in our churches is that we have young pe- a lot of young people. We have actually a lot of generations. And I believe God's purpose is to bring these generations together uh, in order to express something. But it takes a lot of humility on both sides. And it takes a lot of determination. I know I was thinking about this even in terms of that illustration of them coming into the promised land. And I was thinking about Caleb and Joshua who were of a different generation when they recognized, and this is important, that God's purpose was going to press forward with the next generation. And so they let go of their own to enter into the next generation's purpose of God. I spent, I'm only 45, I don't consider myself that old, but I hear you don't consider yourself old ever really, so I don't know when that happens. Eventually 60 becomes young, I'm told, so I don't know. (laughs) But I'm the oldest I've ever been at least. So I'm 45, and uh, within that, I, I already begin to see that the purpose of my life is to set up the next generation for what God's gonna do in them. And that didn't cause Caleb to sit back and say, therefore, I'm going to do nothing. But Caleb said, the purpose of the next generation is this land, so I'm going to go in and give me a mountain that I'll work alongside the next generation. I won't sit back and just tell them how to do it, but I'll enter into the purpose God has in that generation, and I'll take a mountain with them. And I believe the challenge is both the faith of allowing the generation to emerge and the boldness to be part of their generational purpose and take a mountain with them. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe this is going to be part of what God wants to do because I believe God wants to, with this church, as I believe with all churches, I believe he wants to change the world. I believe that with all my heart. I don't believe that God wants to just have a group of Christians who are hanging on, hoping for his return. I believe he actually wants us to change the entire world. And I believe we miss this because we so often starts with ourselves. We focus on ourselves. That's why we miss it on the generational issues. We're always concerned about our generation. But like Steve said last night, to be persons, we need to be other focused. We actually need to be focused on the other, not ourselves. But because we have that self-preoccupation, a lot of times when we start with the story of the Bible, we kind of approach it like Genesis 1 is there to deal with Darwin, you know, that's going to come in the future and to say God created everything. But the real story starts with Genesis 2. And that's kind of how we approach it. And the real story starts with us and the fall. And when we start in Genesis 2, we make the story of the Bible about a story of our rescue. And then once we get rescued and we get born again, we're not really sure what the story's about because we're born again. And so the only story left is, well, let's just try to get other people born again, which is a good thing. But that's just the end of story. And then we just wait around until Christ wraps it up. But part of that is because we don't start back in Genesis chapter 1, which is where God started. We don't start with the introduction of the story because the introduction of the story was about God creating a people that would go out and change the entire world. That was God's intention in Adam. And God's intention never changed. Genesis 2 is not a story of how God switched plans. Genesis 2 is about a story how we as humans can't do it on our own. Genesis 2 is about Adam and Eve failing in what God had called them to do. And so again, that wasn't a plan B for God. Like, okay, now I need to think through what I'm going to do because we know from the Bible God's purpose was always in Christ. We know he's setting things up for Jesus who is the last Adam, not the second Adam because there are no more Adams to come, but the last Adam who is the Adam who God has placed on the earth in order to fulfill the transformation of society. 
This is the commission that Christ himself gave to the disciples. He doesn't go back just to Genesis 2. He reiterates Genesis 1, go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations. He's actually reiterating, Adam, I want you to, Eve, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to rule and subdue and bring it in order and teach it to do these things and I want you to fill it. He's saying, Jesus is saying the same thing. Church, I want you to go fill the earth and I want you to establish them under my kingdom, under my rule, teaching them to obey everything. It's again an echo of Genesis 1. God's purpose is still the same. It's just now fulfilled through Christ and those who are of his line, the line of the second Adam. In fact, the very language of the New Testament is a new creation, isn't it? That there was an original creation that had an attention that did not get fulfilled by the original but will be fulfilled in the new creation. That we have to start all the way in Genesis 1. If we're going to figure out who we are and what our purpose is, we have to first figure out what God was doing and what he was about because God has a purpose for the earth. Again, I know he has a purpose for us, but he does have a purpose for this actual planet as well. He has a purpose for the earth. I don't, I don't know if we think about this a lot. Maybe you do, but I don't know that we think about ourselves as culture makers with a destiny that's tied to the earth. Adam was actually made, wasn't he, from the dust of the earth and the destiny of humanity and the destiny of the earth, man, man made from the earth and of course breathed into life by God, that combination of heavens and earth is the destiny of man. But it's still rooted in the earth in the same way that uh, we, or in a way that we often don't think about. Let me say it that way, that there, the earth itself was subject to sin so that when Adam sinned, what happened to the earth? Sorry, I, I sometimes make people respond back. What happened to the earth? It fell into the bondage of decay. Did the earth do anything wrong? No, the earth didn't do anything wrong. Who did? We did, right? The earth and us tied together. We sin, the earth comes into subject to decay. And then Paul argues that when we're born again and finally get our resurrected bodies, because again, the body was made from the earth, right? When that resurrected body happens, what happens to the earth? It's set free from its bondage to decay. That all of a sudden there's, I'm just trying to get you to see that we have a destiny that's on the earth. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is there's been a generation of Christians that kind of came into strength and popularity in like the 70s and beyond, which were kind of escapist when it came to God's purpose on the planet. And all this is going to matter on the image of God. Okay, it's going to get there. Just trust me on this. Because the image of God is about something God wants established on the earth is we're going to see. That's where he did it. It's where he wants it. And this destiny is there. And they came into kind of this way of thinking of, hey, we're just trying to escape this place to get up to heaven. Do you guys know what I'm talking about there? And this could be challenging, I suppose, for some. But this was kind of the approach. Let's just hang on and get out of here. And it's a weird way of thinking if you read the Bible from the beginning to end. It's almost like a reverse angelic <laughs> uh, disposition. God's proper position for people is on the earth. That's what he made. When at the beginning of time, God didn't make heaven and then place us in heaven. He said, I want to make a new kind of creation, man, and I'm going to make his setting and his setting is the earth. And I'm going to make it clear because I'm going to make him from earth. He's going to be from land. This is his setting. And almost in, uh, similar to the angels, I don't know for sure if demons come from fallen angels, that there's some evidence in scripture that that's what happened. And, and if that is what happened, then it's interesting. They didn't want to keep their proper place in heaven. And it says in Revelation, if this is what it's talking about, that they were cast to the earth. 
because they wouldn't keep their proper place there. They wanted to come here. And it's almost like God's put us in our proper place on earth, but all we want to do is the reverse of what the angels have done and leave earth and get to heaven instead of accepting our proper place of where we're supposed to be. Now, I get the desire because the heart of the desire is we want God's presence, right? I mean, I get it. When we say, I want to go to heaven, sometimes we're just saying, I want to be in God's presence and I want to get rid of this resurrected or this old body and get a new one that doesn't ache and lose its hair and all that turn gray and all this kind of stuff. But maybe it does. I don't know. But maybe I'll be, well, I'll be gray in heaven. So that would feel like justice to me, actually, because <laughs> I turned gray at, at 18. So it's all started going bad. I've, I've been for about 10 years now. I'm 45 now, but starting about 35, I was asked routinely, how are you enjoying retirement? Um, and I'm not kidding. I would go out with my wife and they're like, oh, father and daughter, this is so nice. And because she looks young, so, because I turned gray early, but I tried to say it was a sign of wisdom, but it was just genetics. Um, but within it all, what was I saying? Something more important than my hair. Oh, that there was, again, this kind of reverse approach at times that's caused us to abandon our destiny and what it means to be the image of God, is what I'm saying. It's caused us to reject these things because we've somehow not wanted to be here, and I get it because we've wanted God's presence with us. But the issue is we want, the issue should be that we want God's presence with us here because even in the future, just to be clear, when the whole thing gets wrapped up, God says that he's going to place us in a new heavens and a new earth. He still hasn't abandoned it. God's intention isn't to escape it. It's something he wants on the earth. And this is how Jesus taught us to think, not in terms of escaping to go up there. We want the presence of God. So let's pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven it's not hey let's labor to get out of here to be up there no let's labor to take this and make it a model of what we're doing here because god's purpose is that the glory of the lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea have you been to the sea there's a lot of water on it it's everywhere right but do we see this intention is always here on the earth. God wants to do something on the earth. We get this when we start in Genesis 1. I've created this earth and I've put you, Adam and Eve, on this to do something while you're here, while you're on this earth, while you're doing it. It's even in the creation account. It's interesting when it gets into Genesis uh, 2 and it comes back to the creation of man uh, after the Genesis 1 account. It says this, this strange statement in the beginning. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And the reason it's strange is because that phrase appears all throughout the rest of Genesis. And every other time it appears, it describes the descendants of somebody. These are the generations of Adam. These are the, gen or, or, yeah, of Adam. These are the generations of, of Abraham. These are the generations of. And so if we take that phrase to mean the same thing it means in every other place in Genesis, it just said that our father and mother, so to speak, is heaven and earth that we are somehow a creation of the combination of the two. Okay, now Earth's not our mother. Please don't hear that new age weird-wise. Okay, I'm just saying it's trying to say that what was born in Adam is this combination of heaven and earth together, that this is what God created. He created Eden as heaven on earth, put man and woman in it, and he said, now I want you to go out into the rest of the earth, and I want you to transform it, and I want the rest of the earth to be heaven on earth in the same way. That is huge. That requires more faith than I usually have when I wake up in the morning. I don't know about you, but the minute I even hear those things, I'm like, that's just too big. It's just too much. 
But I can't abandon what the Bible says just because my faith isn't big enough for it yet. I just need to grow in my faith in some way to do these things. And so because of that, I want us to start all the way back in Genesis 1 and see what that purpose actually is. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Here in a bit, we'll read the whole chapter together, but right now I just want to start with a few words. I read from the ESV. If that's different than what you have, just FYI. Some people use the nearly inspired version. Um, no, I'm kidding. NIV's great. Just being funny. <clears throat> All right. In the beginning, it says, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, what? God. All right, that's far enough. In the beginning, God. All right, if we're going to talk about the image of God, God's purpose in the earth, who we are is the image of God, we've got to start with him. In the beginning, God. John Calvin said this. You may not like John Calvin. We'll stay away from all his debatable issues, but this is still a good statement. He says, man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. But we must treat of the former in the first place, the knowledge of God, and then descend to the latter, the knowledge of ourselves. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, the fact that we are made in God's image means we can't really talk about who we are until we first talk about who God is. Because if we don't understand who God is, we will never understand who we are. And so we can't start with ourselves. We have to start with, in the beginning, God. And we're going to realize that when we get to the passage where it says I make, that God is going to make man in our image, that that happens at the end of a passage in which God has been showing who he is. And he's showing who he is because when he declares what that image means for us, it's going to be an imitation of the kinds of things he's done. You're, I'm the God who does these things. Now I want you to do these things. And we find that the image of God, as we're going to get to, is something actually quite concrete. We quickly move into philosophy and debates about these things. Well, what is the image of God? You know, is it, is it the fact that we talk? Is it we feel? And we go into all philosophical discussions and forget that the passage is rooted in an actual text. That it isn't an actual passage. Now, I'm not saying those other things, those debates, may or may not represent God. But there was something specific in Genesis chapter 1 that the image of God meant, which is rooted in what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. Do you follow that? It's rooted in things God was doing, and now he's going to do now. Maybe this is helpful if I give an example. It's like this. If I went to my son Benjamin, he's, he's 10 years old, and he's fantastic, but he's a handful. And um, if I was going to him and I made my bed, I said, come here, watch me. And I make the bed, and I get it all set up just right. Now I said, I want you to grow up, and I want you to be my image in your room. Okay. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to go make your bed. Now, if Benjamin then goes on, I'm like, great. I go on with the day, and halfway through the day, I look in there, and his bed's a mess. And I'm like, Benjamin, come here for a second. Um, what's going on? I told you what I wanted you to make the bed. He says, well, you told me you want to be in your image, and so I just went away started thinking about what that means. Does it mean I'm going to get a gray beard? Does it mean I'm going to grow to six foot tall? Does it mean um, I'm going to be incredibly good looking like you? Does it mean... Sorry. Does it mean, like, I started debating the philosophy of it. I wouldn't sit there and say, oh, fair enough. That's fine. Yeah, it's a good discussion. I'd say, no, sorry, you misunderstood what I said. 
you need to make the bed because the image of me that I'm showing you is doing these things. This is more the sense of Genesis 1. These are the things I'm doing. Adam and Eve, I want you to do these same things on earth. So we have to start to do that. We have to look at the kinds of things God was doing and we have to look at how we emulate those exact same things. We've got to look at who God is to understand who we are. It's always got to be part of the equation. Uh, Last night, Steve was talking about the call of Moses, right? That great passage in which he's standing before the burning bush and God's calling Moses to do something. And it's an interesting passage. It's a great passage because God shows up to Moses, Moses and starts talking about himself. I've heard the cries of Israel. I'm concerned about my people. I'm concerned about these types of things. He doesn't start talking to Moses about Moses. He starts talking about his own concerns and what he's going to do. If I'm Moses, I'm listening, I'm like, okay, what does this have to do with me? And it isn't until the very end, he says, so I want you to go because there's something I have in my heart to do. Interestingly enough, Moses' role is only going to be understood in light of what God himself is, who God is and what God is doing. I find that so backwards to how we approach things. You know, we work a lot with young people and all the rage is finding out my strengths and taking these tests that find out my strengths and my gifts and what I'm good at and I'm going to try to do these things. And we're not talking at all about who God is and what God is actually doing. Because if you find out what God is doing and you just get involved in that, you're going to, say, you're going to have a lot of sense of the purpose of God. And a whole generation feels lost because it's all about them and how God's going to help them use their strengths. It's the opposite of what happens with Moses. It's the opposite of what happens with Elijah. It's the opposite. You read all throughout the Bible. And it's, again, it's challenging to me. Maybe you have a lot of prophetic words. Maybe you don't. But when I'm listening to a lot of prophetic words over people's lives, it's, hey, Tom, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to be great and you're going to be awesome and you're going to speak and all this kind of stuff. And it sounds so different than, listen, Tom, I'm concerned about my people. I'm concerned. All I'm talking about is God, from God, my own heart. Now I'm asking you to go to do what I'm doing. Do you follow that? And so again, only by looking at God and what he's doing do we understand who we are. And, and even in Moses' objections, he wanted to turn it back to himself right away. But I'm not a good speaker. Like we heard last night, well, I'm not this. And God's response is, I'm going with you. And I am. Okay, I, I know that name is much bigger than this and it means more than this. But it at least means I am all the things you're not. You go, you're not a good speaker. Well, it's okay, I am. You're not a good leader. It's okay. I am, and I'm the one doing this. You're just the woman I'm using. I'm doing this. That's the difference in perspective. I'm doing this, Moses, not you. You seem to think I'm telling you to do it for me, not with me, but I'm the one doing this. And so that's the same thing Jesus said when he said, hey, guys, I want you to go. You're going to stand before princes. You're going to be persecuted, but don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will tell you. I'm the one doing this. The Holy Spirit's the one doing this. You're not. You're just doing it with him, not for him. But again, we only understand it in light of God being in the picture, so to speak. God being the one doing it. The same thing, similar to what happened to Peter when Peter's name was switched, you know, from Simon to Peter. The context of it is important. Jesus came to him and said, who do people say that I am? And he said, well, you're the Elijah to come, you're John the Baptist, you're this. And then he says, okay, who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And in response to that, Jesus says, you're no longer Simon, you're now Peter. By seeing who I am, we've now identified who you are. Again, the same thing. It's not by Peter figuring himself out, but by figuring out who God is 
and what God's doing, now he gets his own identity established in light of that. So it always works. That way we've got to look at God and what he's doing to understand ourselves rightly in things. I mean, it's... It's, it's, I said this is passage in Hebrews, which is always interesting. Hebrews 11, before it goes on to give these amazing accounts of what everybody's done. And it starts out with saying that, you know, without faith, well, later on it says without faith, it's impossible to please God uh, at the beginning of the chapter. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he is. <laughs> okay, that seems really basic. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the, well, the first time I read it, I'm like, really? That's, that's the height of faith that causes me? I just believe you exist? But then I started thinking about it a little bit more, and I realized, hey, you know, it's not just I believe we're not atheists, we believe God exists, but I believe that part of that, of that faith is that they believe God is in the situation that they're facing. Because the rest of the chapter is all about, hey, left to yourself, Abraham, you're too old, but God is right there with you in it, so things are different. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're going into a furnace, but God is right there because we live differently if we actually believe he's there, don't we? I think sometimes we act like he's not there. For instance, if you went home after this conference and you walked in the door and on the table was a note, I'm hidden somewhere in your house, Scott Goodwill. (laughs) Now, let me just ask you a question. Would you just carry on your life like normal? Would you just go, I'm going to go, you know, make some food. I'm going to go change my clothes. I'm going to go. You wouldn't do any of those things, would you? You'd do one of two things. You'd either go grab your shotgun and look for me, or you'd maybe call the police to say this psycho preacher is hiding in my house. I don't know. What, what you do. But one thing I do know is you wouldn't live the same. And, I, and God has given us a note that's saying, hey, I'm actually there in every situation you're in. But we don't often live like he's there. We only live like we're the ones in the situation. And God, somewhere up there, help me. Instead of realizing, no, I can't see myself in the situation without seeing God here, doing something in the middle of it, in the middle of what's going on. This is the way Jesus saw God behind everything, didn't he? He said, you see these flowers? God made them. He clothed these lilies. He clothed these flowers of the field. And you look at it and you're like, well, kind of. I mean, you know, they had seeds that have little codes in them. They tell them to grow up. And it's the reflection of the sun that filters out certain colors but causes it to reflect other colors. Yeah, I get all that. Just so you know, God is there in the middle of that causing all that to happen. He's actually part of the equation. And so again, our understanding of ourselves is rooted back in who God is and what God is doing. And so if we go back to Genesis 1, we have to start with what God is doing. What's going on there? And this is seen, actually in the next session, well, I'll start to break all this stuff out, but this is seen even further by the word God uses to talk about us when we're established in his image. Now, give me a little space here because this might make some of us a little nervous, but it's the word in the Bible, so I feel okay about it. That the final step of creation, when God kind of, after he creates anything before the Sabbath, is that he creates man, right? Before he enters into his Sabbath and rests. And he uses a certain word there. We translate that word image. It's a safe translation. It's a good translation. So we are his image. But it's a word sema that was used in lots of places in Hebrew literature of the time that this was written. It was used in all kinds of cultures. It wasn't an uncommon word. And its main meaning in all other cultures is idol. So that's what I'm saying. Give me some time here. I'm not going to say we're idols and we're not to be worshipped. Let me make that crystal clear. Everyone say Scott's not saying we should be worshipped. Thank you. Okay, so just give me a few minutes. 
Um, so within it all, it is actually the word idol. Now, how that word was used is that when a king would be established in his reign, his reign was always linked in that society to gods or the god or the gods that he worshipped, that he gave credit to. So one of the first things that he would do, we know this by all um, near ancient Near Eastern history, is he would build a temple to that god. And he to acknowledge the God's gift of his reign. And so when that temple was going to be completed, the very last thing that would happen is they would put in that temple a sima, an idol that represents that God. And then the temple was now active and ready to go forward in what it was called to do. And you could worship because that represented the God. Now, it's interesting to me, I believe in the plenary inspiration of scripture, which means I believe God actually picked the words that were used and the words that weren't used. And it's interesting to me that that's the word God chose to use to describe what we're supposed to be in the earth. Now, one of the things God does, obviously, is he takes words that have a core meaning and sanctifies them, taking out the things that don't apply. He does that with lots of words because he's trying to use our language to describe his eternal realities. And so, certainly, the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that we don't represent God in any way that we should be worshipped, right? We all know that. That's crystal clear. But he is taking that image to say, I want you to understand who you're supposed to be is you are, just like that idol in the temple represents that God, you are my representation on earth. And you're not to be worshipped, but you're to fill the earth with a bunch of images, idols, that all represent me all across the entire earth. Which again, roots us back into, okay, if we're going to know who we're supposed to be, we have to know what we're supposed to represent. Does that make sense? We can't just kind of figure out our lives as individuals saying, hey, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. We have to stop and say, okay, who are you, God? Because if I'm supposed to be your image, your representation in this temple, because the earth is a temple, right? That's what the God built, is he built a temple. That's why the temple itself is patterned after the earth. When the building of the temple, when the temple was built, if you think about it, you came into the outer gates, right? In the outer gates, you had a basin of water that was built on an, uh, from a foundation of earth, earth and water. That was the place where all the nations would gather, and it's the place in where the animals would be sacrificed. You'd walk into the holy place, and when you come into the holy place, all other light would be gone. You would have these candles that would give the only light there, you, which would be like stars. You would have this incense that would come up like a cloud. You would have the rainbow across the curtain. You have all the images of the heavens. And then beyond that, you have the, the heavens of the heavens where God's presence is, and it's all cut away by a curtain. The God's presence, because of sin, is held back. And it's supposed to represent every time that the Hebrews came to the temple, they were supposed to remember God's presence, which is held behind a curtain, is supposed to be through the heavens across the earth. Because the earth is supposed to be a temple of God's presence. It's not because of sin, which is why it's so significant when Jesus was resurrected and the veil was torn and he says, now go and fill the earth with my image, just like I was originally calling you to do. And so we see that even the very word he uses is not a word that tells us about ourselves, but it's a word that, well, it does tell us about ourselves, but it's a word that tells us we need to root our orientation back to God. I am just a representative, an image, an idol, that which shows who God is in the earth, that that is my purpose, that is my destiny. And so God, for some crazy reason has tied his purpose of what he wants to do in creation to us 
into our being his image. It's shocking. I mean, every time I read it, I'm like, I don't know that that was a good plan, but you're smarter than me. So I'm going to trust you on it. I feel like one of those moments when I say to my kids, I know this doesn't seem smart, but I know what I'm talking about right here. It feels like it must be one of those things with him that he's tied it. Obviously, he secured it because he himself came as the last Adam to make sure it would happen. But God has tied it. So even when we talk about ourselves, we're not talking about ourselves as distinct from God, but as representing who he is and glorifying him by becoming who he's made us to be. The purpose, you know, one of the main purposes of creation is the glory of God. That God does want his, again, his glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That God does want to be glorified. There are loads of scriptures. I won't take the time to go through that. But there are loads of scriptures that talk about God's glory in creation, his glory in the heavens, that, that creation is God's glory gone public, so to speak. That it's seen in everything and that in everything we do, we're supposed to live for the glory of God. But again, that glory is not just some intangible glowing that's going to descend on the earth. I don't believe that. I believe that glory covering the earth is seen by the original intention of us covering the earth with his image. I believe it's a concrete thing because, and this is, this is, if it wasn't in the Bible, you'd be scared to say this, because God puts his glory on us and he wants to glorify us. That's what the Bible says. We live our lives to glorify him, and the more we glorify him, the more he puts his glory on us, which glorifies him. This is the writing. Let me give you some scriptures here before we take a break, just so you don't think I'm making this stuff up. I mean, in a few places in the Bible, it says, I mean, we could, there's a million of them, but the main word that God uses to describe the end game of our life is glorification, even more than sanctification. Sanctification is important. Sanctification is a separating unto but unto what is the question. And so the Bible mainly speaks of us being glorified. Jesus prayed this on his, right before he went to his crucifixion. One of the things he prayed is, God, I pray that the same glory I had in you before I came down here, I ask that that same glory would be in them. That is a big prayer, isn't it? Even as I read it, I still don't even think I have a clue what that means. But all I know is Jesus prayed that his glory would be on us and in us, that he has an intention to glorify us. And if anyone's prayers get answered, I'm sure they're Jesus's, right? So partly because he's part of the answer, but that there is this sense of, hey, the same glory which I had, I want you to put on them. And so then again in Romans 8, when Paul's talking about our destiny, he says, those God foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. Just skips right over sanctification there, that he glorified. That again, God's intention in foreknowing us is that we would be glorified. That again, Paul says this in another occasion, he says, as we look into Jesus's glory, as we look into his image, who he is, then we ourselves are being changed into that same image from one glory to another. Again, a process of glorification. That there's a glory that's, as we are better being his image, as we're better representing him, as we're becoming like him, it's a process of his glory resting more and more in our lives and our being glorified. We've quoted the scripture last night, or referred to it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the hope is a glorification of our lives. I don't believe that scripture means the hope of glory, meaning glory someplace up there. I believe that scripture is actually saying Christ in us, the hope of glory resting on us. 
I believe it's something that makes sense with the rest of the passage in context. He's not talking about escaping to heaven. He's talking about something God wants to do in our lives here on earth. And so over and over and over again, there is this sense that we're supposed to have a glory. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be as glorious as God is because only God is that glorious. But it's the same glory. It's kind of like if I had a candle here with fire on it. It's not the sun, is it? But it's still fire. It's still the same. The nature of it's the same. It's not as big. It's not as the same amount. In the same way, God wants his glory to rest on his people. And that glory rests on us and covers the earth and actually changes the world. But again, the only way that glory rests on us is if we have become more and more, like Paul said, his image on the earth. God creates, sets us down as the image, says, now I want you to fill it with that. And in this intention, the glory of the earth will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So with that in mind, we're going to take a quick break, try to get practical in the next session and say, okay, so what is that actual image? How do we do this? How do our lives get glorified and bring glory in the earth? Okay, so let's take 15. What do you think? 10? 10. 10 minutes. I don't know what time it is right now, but so 10 minutes from now. one is fast and the other is faster. So I try to stay in fast when I'm speaking. Um, some of it's just my personality. Some of it's probably where we live. We, uh, Kenosha is actually 45 minutes from Chicago and 30 minutes from Milwaukee. So it's, it's the very bottom of Wisconsin. So it's different than the rest of Wisconsin. And if you've ever been to Chicago, anyone ever been to Chicago? A few people. So Chicago's a bit fast-paced, you know, like 55 miles per hour in Chicago means at least 75 uh, is the slow speed kind of thing. I remember when we went to Charleston uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, it was funny that just noticing, like, I feel like I'm a pretty polite driver and I felt completely rude to everybody in Charleston because <laughs> they're just slow, laid back, just hanging around. I don't know what it's like here in St. Louis. Are you guys kind of fast, aggressive, or laid back and slow, or somewhere in the middle? You're the Midwest. You're just perfectly in the middle, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so hopefully you can keep up. But Genesis chapter 1, let's read the chapter. Now we'll try to get beyond the first few words. Uh, and lay out uh, three, I believe there are three emphasis in this chapter of what it means to be the image of God. I'm going to try to get through two of them in 40 minutes. We'll see how that goes. And then leave the third one for tonight. But let's get the whole chapter in our mind just because I'm going to refer to different things throughout and I just want to have it right there in our heads. So... It says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters they were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind um, on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, 
plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their own fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day and God said that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day he gets a lot done in a day and God said, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every ringed, winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth light, living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, that's a lot of scripture, isn't it? All right, I just wanted it all in our mind as we start to work through kind of a little bit more, hopefully trying to get practical on some of the big picture things we said in the first session. Uh, and try to get really down to brass tacks as to what it means when we say we're created in God's image um, and what that image means. So the image of God may mean other things. I'm not trying to rule those things out, but it at least means kind of the three things we're going to talk about because all three of these things are rooted in the passage itself. In Genesis 1, it's at least saying that to be in God's image, we are to take certain actions that represent him in the earth. So while there may be truth in the being ontology debate, you know, our being, being in the image of God, I'm going to stay away from that because I don't believe that's what's going on primarily in Genesis 1. I think he's primarily showing us how he does something and then saying, okay, so now in my image, he starts to use phrases that represent the very things 
that he's done. Do you follow that? And who he is. And so if we say we want to be in the image of God, and we want a church that's in the image of God, I think it's a church that's going to be about these things. So let's do a little bit of a Bible study, um, not too technical, but technical stuff, just for us to frame what's going on in this passage. Again, um, I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. Uh, I do believe that in some ways, uh, Darwin unfortunately has stolen this passage from us. Um, please don't misunderstand me. I believe that Genesis proves whatever Darwin said was wrong. Um, I think uh, I haven't checked this out, but uh, in Darwin's book, I heard someone say it was like over a hundred times. He says things like, well, let us assume da, 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 da. And so I think making assumptions isn't really a smart idea when it comes to the ultimate meaning of life. But, um, but within it all, I do believe that this proves that God created, right? And so, but please hear what I'm saying. I don't believe that this was the primary thing in the, writer's, uh, the writer of this passage, which is a written down oral tradition. I don't believe this passage was spoken into the context of uh, the b debate on evolution. I believe it settles, please hear me, it settles that God created everything, okay? So we assume that, okay? That's, that's a done deal. So it's good to use it in response to that. But because we so focus on that, what I'm trying to say is, I think we sometimes miss the impact it would have had for a people who weren't focused on that. Does that, does that make sense? And so we've re failed to realize, okay, what would it have meant to them? Because one of the things in Bible interpretation is the Bible's written for us, but it's not written to us, right? It's written to a people then. And so in order for us to understand it, we need to understand it as they would have understood it. Um, and once we understood what the Bible says to them, we understand what it means for us. You guys follow that? So we just have to understand language as it works. Um, I often use this illustration because we sometimes think of language as science, but it's not. Um, language has meaning. If you study kind of linguistics and, and these kinds of things, they'll talk about the fact that language doesn't, or words don't actually have meanings, they have uses. And the way you use a word determines what that word means, right? Does that make sense? So for instance, just to use an illustration I use, if I said the word wicked, Someone give me a definition of wicked. What does it mean? Sweet. <laughs> Your chi. Yeah, exactly. Let's have someone besides Stephen give a definition. What's wicked mean? Evil is the first thing that comes. Now, here's a generational difference. So if I said I was watching the Olympics recently, anyone watched the Winter Olympics? Watching the Winter Olympics, and they did this, you know, they did this jump on the half pike with the snowboard, and it was wicked. So did I just say that it's evil? What did I say it is? Sweet. That's what I said it is. So again, that's, again, words don't necessarily have meanings. They have uses. So if I was 2,000 years later and I was looking back at this document and it said they did a snowboard jump and it was wicked. Therefore, snowboarding is evil. No one should snowboard. Um, that's what we do. Now, we do this with the Bible more than we realize. <laughs> because we, you know, anyway, I'll stay off this. This is not my subject. All right, so within that, we have to understand how they would have understood it. And so in Genesis 1, there is a, there is a literary device being used that actually goes into chapter 2. We know the chapters were added later. But there's an inclusio, it's called. An inclusio is like a bookend. So if you think about the fact that the Bible was mainly not written, but it was mainly spoken because most people couldn't read, Right? And so because of that, they would hear it. And it was written from the perspective of hearing more than this perspective of reading and studying. Uh, most of it was. That's why in Revelation, it will say people who hear the words of this prophecy. 
um, more than read. It's certainly blessed if you read them, but it's indicating it's actually meant to be heard. It's an imagery that you're supposed to catch your hearing in the way you listen to it. And so this, of course, was an oral tradition that was written down, and an inclusios are kind of this, you put the same phrase at the beginning and at the end of a um, spoken word or a passage that helps you to bookend it to let you know what it was about. And usually what happens is you put an inclusio, which is the intro, followed by a problem. Then it goes through the thing, the other side of the inclusio, and the end solution or the emphasis and the time in between shows you what went on to get from here to there. Does that make sense? And you would know this because in that day and age, they were just phrases that are just known in culture. So like, for instance, to use one, uh, maybe this is a bad one because Genesis isn't fiction, but if I got up and said, okay, once upon a time, there was a whatever, boy. I didn't tell you anything, but I just introduced something that you would understand to be fact or fiction. Fiction. It's a fairy tale. It's a thing. I didn't tell you I'm about to tell you a fairy tale. I used a oratory device. I used a thing that said, okay, well, all I have to say is once upon a time, and you know, okay, this is this. So in the same way, that's how an inclusio worked. Does that make sense? This is the most technical part here, guys, so hold on with me, but it'll, it'll get to a point. So Genesis 1-1 starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so there's the first part of it, and it, the passage ends with chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. God created God created and all the host of them. So that's the two sides. It's the, it's the imitation of the phrase. This is God created. Now God finished creating. So now we know beginning, end. And each of them are followed by, again, an introduction, which Steve brought out one of them last night. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void. Well, that's a strange statement to start with. Like he said last night, what a weird way to start a creation account. So we start out of this account with, we know God created everything. Those are the facts. But the problem is God stepped into a situation that was formless and void. We're going to come back to that. He goes through the whole process of creation. And by the end, the other book, and thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day when God had finished all the work he had done, he rested from all his work that he had done. And he got blessed and made it holy because it was all done. So we find that what happened is the emphasis in this chapter, again, from someone listening in that day and age would have been, God took something that was chaotic, formless, and void. He puts this whole thing into order. And then once everything's order and functioning properly, we're now at rest with a properly ordered functioning system. You guys follow that? That's the progress of the passage. That's the contrast of the clusio. Chaos to order. That which is without form to form. That which is not functioning to function. And then all of a sudden, now there is this eternal purpose of God, which is going to be brought up in the New Testament in another sermon, which is Sabbath, which is rest, which is Christ is in our Sabbath, obviously, but that which is God's eternal order because everything is functioning as it should. You guys follow that? So this is kind of, again, what would have been the emphasis in looking through this passage as God created. It starts with this phrase, formless and void. Tohu wabohu is the phrase in the Greek, or in the Greek, sorry, in the Hebrew. It's a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament, and it's used of that which is not, it's a wilderness, it's a wasteland, it's chaos, it's not functioning like it should. In fact, in the rest of the Bible, it's usually a function of God's judgment. He comes to something and lays it to waste, and he makes it chaos because he needs to create something that's right in the way that it should be. 
Um, this is emphasized in the prophets when it says God does not create tohu wabohu. He is not someone who creates chaos. And so this chaos is something that God steps into in the creation account in order to bring it into a place of order, into a place of what it should be. And as we read the creation account, again, this would have stuck out to you. Because if you notice how many times it says things like, and God made this after its kind, and this after its kind, and this after its kind. This is chaos. I'm putting everything in its place, right where it's supposed to be, functioning like it should. I'm dividing the water out here, and I'm putting a boundary right here, and this is not coming to here. This is, I'm putting the sky up here, and I'm putting a boundary, and you're not coming down here, and I'm putting everything, again, from chaos to order. How many people here like order? How many people love that feeling of going into a chaotic room and just putting everything where it should go? Um, I don't, I don't, I love the, I love the effective order. I don't love the process personally, but... (laughs) Um, but some people, my wife actually loves the process. It's amazing to me. She just loves to order things. So, so I just figure it's my job to mess things up for her because I'm just helping her do what she loves to do. So it's kind of me, isn't it? Um, but this is what's going on in this passage. It's all, again, God establishing things according to their kind, the way they should do. It's, this is a king stepping into a chaotic situation and ordering it and getting it to function the way it should function. And he even uses these kinds of words. I've created the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. These aren't the words we would use scientifically, right? And again, he's using this because it's trying to show what, who God is, what he's doing, because he's going to come to Adam and say, I'm going to make you in my image and let them rule because that's what I've just been doing, establishing order establishing rule, establishing the way things should be. Everything in its right place. Sun, rule. Moon, rule. Seasons, be ruled by the stars. This, everything being established in order. It is even part of the meaning of the word good. The word good in the Hebrew, we tend to think of the word good as that which is more closer to like perfection, like that's which is really well done. But in Hebrew, it had more relationship to that which is functioning the way it should that which is functioning properly. It certainly included a sense of artisanship and a sense of, hey, this is done well. And the reason we know it's done well is because it's working the way it should. You follow that? So if I made a hammer that the head of the hammer flies off when I swing it back, it wasn't very good. <laughs> you follow that? It's not a good hammer. And so it was all both design and function. This is why in the creation account, he sets things, it's functioning like it should, and he steps back and says, good, that's the way it should be. Next one. Good. It's the way it should be. Good. Gets to Adam, as was said last night, and he says, what's that? Well, eventually, but when you Adam before Eve, sorry, as we get to in the creation, you are right. It gets to very good, um, which I like the fact that you went there first. That just makes me happy. It means you heard what he said last night. Um, but we gets to Adam before Eve, and he says, this is not good. Now, he's not saying, hey, the quality of my workmanship was pretty bad on Adam. You know, he's like, in fact, we need quality control in here. Send this one to TJ Maxx because I got the seams wrong or something. It's not, it's not primarily what he's saying. He's just saying, why is he saying it's not good? Why? Because Adam can't function the way he should. Because he's supposed to fill the earth, rule and subdue it. He can't fill the earth without... Eve. So this is not good. This is functioning right. This is functioning right. This is functioning right. This is a good creation, but it's not functioning right. So this is not good yet until Eve's created. Now it's very good. 
because now it's functioning the way it should. So again, these are the kinds of things in a Hebrew would have been listening. These are the things that would have popped out at him. That oftentimes we miss because again, we're so caught up in the science side of things, which it can certainly apply to you, that we're missing that what God is doing is setting all of these things to try to create a situation in which life is at peace. So how do we know life is good? Because after the establishment of the good, we now have Sabbath. We now have rest. We now have the presence. And Sabbath isn't just the absence of work because the Bible says, Jesus said this, God is always at work and so am I. That's what Jesus said. The Father's always at work. Well, wait a second. I thought he stopped working, but he's always at work. Because it's not about work. It's about Sabbath rest is about, a, is about the presence of God's peace and blessing. It's about the world being what it should be. You know those moments maybe in your marriage where everything just seems right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Say yes, because your wife's husband's near you, maybe. They'll feel better. You do have some moments, right? There are other moments where it feels like tohu, abohu, chaos. But there are other moments where it feels like, okay, this is the way it should be. Um, Say maybe moments in your parenting. That's that sense of Sabbath. The blessing of God is on this because things are as they should be. This is how things should function, and it's good. So this is kind of the setting in which God makes this first statement in Genesis 1 that we're going to read. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So let them be like I, we just were. And let them, what's that? Have dominion. Okay? So again, I want you to notice that phrase, let them have dominion. Again, in another reiteration of this, account it says let us make adam and eve in our image or he said let's make men our image and let them rule so the very first way we image out god is that we image out his way of ruling and having dominion Um, that's not something we often think if someone said hey what do you want to do with your life we don't often respond by i want to take dominion and rule Um, it's not something we think of because we think of political power i don't suggest you start using that language (laughs) what's the purpose of our church to take dominion and rule Um, But it just shows, the truth is, that's the language of the Bible. It shows our distance from it. And how did God take dominion and rule? He took that which is chaotic and unnatural and not what it should be, and he made it what his intention was to function properly. And so the first way we live in God's image is we take our lives and we start to order them according to the will of God, according to the rule of God, according to the way things should be. We take our marriages and we start to reorder them according to the rule of God, according to the way they should be. And as we do that, we image out what God does. We take the chaos of our children, which are chaos when they're born, right? (laughs) And then we start to order their lives and we start to establish the will of God within them in hopes that raise up a child in the way they should go and they won't depart. They establish this sense of rule and this reordering of society. And again, as we do that, we actually start to image out God and his glory starts to increase within the earth. And this is something that's even bigger than just us. This is how the Bible was about all of society. This is why Israel was to reorder their whole society according to the law of God. This is supposed to be a reordering of things in the way that they should be. And so you even find in the Acts, when the Bible comes and people are born again and filled with the Spirit, has this passage at the end of Acts 2.42, which is a reordered society. The needy are all taken care of. There's no longer exploiting them. People are giving generously. They're meeting in one another's homes. There's joy. There's gladness. There's peace. There's Sabbath. There's all the things that God wants because their whole lives are reordered. 
according to the will of God. And that this, again, is even part of it. It's not just my individual life, but it's actually coming into my workplace and trying to turn the chaos of the work environment, which is a sinful environment, and try to bring something of the order of God into that environment, something of his peace and his presence, something of to the, to the chaos of poverty that's all around us, and start to own that as a church. We get lost in debates of, well, how is it best to help the poor? Well, that doesn't just help them to give a hand out. And we kind of insulate ourselves from doing the job because we're debating how to do the job. Instead of saying, hey, starting to image how God is entering into that and say it isn't right that some people don't have any food and some people have too much. I don't know. I'm not saying I have all the solutions, but all I know is God would come into this and reorder it. And we've got to figure out a way to get food from here to there. We've got to figure out a way to help people. Again, I don't want you to see this just as your own life. It starts there. You learn in your own life how to order yourself in order to develop the ability that we need to take into society. Churches should be about the reordering of society. Racism is out of order. We've got to reorder this into the way that it should be. Now we're being like Adam. We're taking that which we've understood in God and we're taking it out into society. We're taking it the way it should be. Again, it's a challenge because as as Tom has just spent time laboring toward, which I think he produced a great thing, in which the church itself is not really unified. And our own sense of disunity keeps us from the blessing that God would command. Again, that Sabbath commandment of blessing, when things are as they should, when brothers dwell together in unity, there God commands a blessing. And so we're sitting out into the world saying, hey, we shouldn't be racist, and they're saying, well, you can't even get along with each other. There's a chaos is right here, tohu abohu in the church. We need to get this ordered rightly get this operating together the way it should so that we can then again extend that same peace out into the earth this is what the church is supposed to demonstrate it's what paul said jew and gentile in in ephesians his whole argument there in ephesians is these two have now become one and that this amazing oneness is something that's actually supposed to display the wisdom of god to the rulers in heavenly places that the world is supposed to see the wisdom of god's reigning by us again ordering ourselves back according to God's will. Jew and Gentile together in unity as one person. That was the issue in his day. In our day, it might be something else, but it's still an issue of unity. But there is this, again, reordering of our lives according to the will of God because sin comes in and sin creates chaos. Sin creates disorder. Sin creates the opposite of the whole creation account. That's why the rest of the Hebrews passages in the Old Testament, the results of sin are tohu abohu, back to chaos back to the way things should not be. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, actually. Let's read this really quickly. This is a passage that Christians sometimes, I think, we don't always hear exactly what it's saying because what we think it's saying is God saying, hey, homosexuals are worse than everybody else, but that's not actually what it's trying to say. It's trying to say we're all like that, is his actual point. And let's, um, let's walk through this really quickly. It says this in Romans 1.16, but it shows the fact that, hey, sin is the product of life not functioning good, not like it should, not in God's order. It's the chaos of unnaturalness and disorder. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be, known, made, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So God's saying, or Paul's saying here, hey, 
we should be worshiping God because the creation of the world shows that our lives should be lined up with what God says and what God wants to do. He's about to say we don't do that. We don't give thanks to him. We don't obey him. But creation shows that God ordered things according to his will. And the things should function as they should and things should be good and should be natural. Now he's going to say we've rejected that and done that which is unnatural. And so now there's chaos as the result of all of that, which God's going to redeem in his son Jesus. He goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. So again, not ordered, not the way it should be. Things aren't set up right. No longer imaging out God, doing our own thing. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So again, we're supposed to be the image of God, but we've replaced imaging out God for our own images. For ourselves again instead of being the image we're supposed to be we're now worshiping the image whether that image is ourselves or some other image that we're worshiping but there is again this rejection of the original creation intent god over everything his image representing him in the earth you follow that resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things therefore god's response is to give them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so again one of the ways God sometimes disciplines us is by letting us have the thing we ask for. It's kind of like that time with your kids when you like, don't touch that, it's going to hurt. Don't touch that, it's going to hurt. Don't touch it. Fine, touch it. It hurt, didn't it? You know that process? You ever been through that with your kids? It's kind of the same thing. God says, don't do this. Fine, you want it, have it. Let's just see if you're going to like it in the end. So God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So again, he's going back to creation. This is how creation was set up and supposed to be. We've rejected that. And we've gone for our own thing. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations. So that which is natural, that which should be the right order for those that are contrary to nature, because that's what sin is, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So again, he's saying this unnaturalness is seen because it's carried out to the very point that even in this rejection of gender and this rejection of what God wants, there's this unnatural thing happening, which is men with men, with women with women, which is illustrative of what we've all done is what he's about to say because he goes on to say and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice so this is the they this is still the same they they are full of envy has anybody ever been envious murder maybe you haven't committed murder strife deceit maliciousness gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty or proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, the same they, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is a humbling passage. <laughs> the churches so often use it as an arrogant passage. They're so much worse. That's not what it's saying. It's saying we've all exchanged the natural order of things for that which is unnatural. All of us. God came in creation, set things, and sin came and disordered it all. 
God has shown this illustration to us by letting it go all the way to this illustration of unnaturalness in, in rejecting the normal gender for, for its same sex. He says, but, the, them, the, but these kind of people are not just people that commit this sin, but they're the same kind of people that disobey their parents. You've done what they've done. That's what he's saying. He's getting to, for we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory. Again, there's that intention for our lives, glory. We've all done it. And he's showing how we've all done it because he knows we're tempted to think, I'm not doing that, which is unnatural. And he's saying, oh yeah, well, did you ever disobey your parents? Because the proper order that God established is parents in charge, children disobedient. Or children disobedient. No, that's not it's supposed to be. Children obedient. And that's unnatural. Have you ever gossiped against somebody? Because the order of God is you guard them even when they're not there. And you live faithfully to them in covenant even when they're not there. But your gossip has disrupted everything after its kind. Everything in its order. Everything the way it should be. You guys follow this? And it's trying to say, listen, all of us have created this chaos that's in the earth by rejecting God's natural order. But in the coming of Christ, obviously, God's done a new creation. And so now we can begin to bring God's order back into the earth. This is why Jesus' number one message was, the kingdom of God is now near. I'm coming to bring the kingdom, the rule, the right ordering of things back into society. And this is his message throughout. Even in the temple, when he, got, when he came in, then he opened the scrolls. Remember that moment and he, at the beginning when he opens the scrolls and he reads, he reads the spirit of the Lord upon, is upon me because he has anointed me. And he reads this passage out. And oftentimes when we look at that, what we think it's saying is, hey, God's gonna, Jesus is going to prove that he's divinity by the fact that he's going to do some miracles. But that's not what I believe Jesus is doing because he's quoting an Old Testament promise. And this Old Testament promise was, hey, the world's in disorder, the world's in sin, the world's in chaos, but God is going to send someone that is going to rebuild the ruins of the world. And this person is going to reorder society. He will, you'll know it's him because there will be miracles to mark him, but the miracles are testimonies to the reordering of society. He's quoting Isaiah 60. Let's turn, getting a little off subject here, but that's okay. Isaiah 60, 1, this is, this is what he's quoting. And again, He's just quoting the beginning of it to put the passage in his mind to say that everything that this passage is about, this is what my life's about. This is why they get mad. They wouldn't have gotten mad if he had just said, hey, I'm going to do some miracles. That wouldn't make Pharisees mad. Lots of people did miracles. Why did they get so angry at him? They got angry at him because he was claiming that he's going to reorder society. He's saying, today I'm going to fulfill this promise that you as a Jewish people have been holding on to that God will visit his people again and reorder the earth. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Then he said, I just want you to know, that's what I'm here to do. That's a big deal. He's not just saying, hey, I'm going to do some miracles. He's saying, hey, they would have known the minute they heard this is what angered them. You're saying you're the guy that's going to restore the earth from the chaos that's come into it. And he's saying, yes, that's what I'm here to do. I'm not just here to save you from your sins. I'm here to make you part of this mission of reordering society again. 
I mean, how are we going to do that? It's so big. I know it raises a million questions. We can have those discussions later. We just need to start to believe that it's part of the process. He's saying, I'm coming now. And again, the whole passage is captives. That's not right now. They're set free. Blind, not right now. They're seeing ruined cities by devastation of generations. I'm going to rebuild them. I mean, can we believe that the people of God can rebuild cities devastated by generations of chaos? I don't know, but that's what I believe it means to be the image of God. That's what I believe we're supposed to do. I believe this is what he's saying. This is what I did in Genesis 1. This is how it's supposed to be. You failed, but I will send someone who will do this. And then God came as himself, and Jesus said, I'm going to give birth to a people that will fulfill this. I don't know how close can we get before Jesus returns. I don't know. I know that there is this crazy passage in Corinthians where it says this, that, that God, Jesus, we, right now Jesus reigns in heaven while, all his, while he waits, it says, for all his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. That's what it says. Right now we don't see them all that way. And he's waiting for all of them to be seen as a footstool for his feet. And then he'll come back to destroy the last enemy, which is death. Okay, that's a challenging passage to me. This Jesus is reigning while the church, and this is what Paul said, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet. Because we are his body, the church. The fullness of him, of him who fills everything in every way. And he says Jesus is waiting for all the enemies to be put under his feet. And then he'll come back to destroy the last one, death. That seems to indicate we've knocked out some enemies. <laughs> That's huge. I, don't, I mean, again, I know this is challenging. This may challenge your eschatology, but sometimes we can't let our eschatology bend scripture. We need to go ahead and deal with what the scripture is saying. That there are a people that will grow up into him in all ways is what the bible says and be his body in the earth and that again will not just be about individual salvation but the bringing of the rule of the kingdom of god calling heaven saying heaven let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in such a way that the enemies of god are visibly destroyed so that jesus can then come back will there also be evil in the last days absolutely the bible says it so they're both true sometimes we're held like this in the bible aren't we we can't let go of one truth in order to do it because that's going to snap us to one side we hold on to both truths that keep us right in the middle. There will be evil, but yet the church is going to somehow be able to visibly demonstrate the victory of Christ over every enemy but death. Amen. And so because of that, we've got to rethink how we do church. We've got to rethink the way we're going about it because we bear the image of God by living this stuff out. So that's number one. I should be in number two by a long way now. So two, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. We'll go fast. Number two. So the first way we bear the image of God is let them... God created them in my image and let them rule. The second thing he does is he says, I've created you in my image and I want you to fill the earth. So again, when you look at the creation account, it's not just a creation of God setting rule, it's a creation of God filling. In fact, the creation account, as you probably all know, is set up in kind of two panels of three in which God creates a setting and then fills it. Creates a setting and then fills it. So day one, he creates kind of the light and darkness day and night, which is a setting that he's then in day four going to fill with stars and sun and moon. In day two, he creates water and separates that from land, uh, or, or creates the sky, sorry. He separates the waters above from the waters below. So there's all water here, and then there's the sky up here, and there's this atmosphere in between. And so he does it on day two, and then on day five, he fills those with fish and birds. 
the two settings he had, it's like he sets the stage and fills them. And then in day three, he separates it out, the waters from the land, and causes land to emerge and vegetation to grow. And then on day six, he creates animals and humans to fill it. So in every one of the parallels, he's creating a setting, filling, creating a setting, filling, creating a setting, filling. And then he turns around and says, okay, now Adam and Eve, I want you to be in my image. What did I do? Well, I created order and function, so I want you to rule and create proper function to your families, to your work, to all those things. Second thing, I filled and brought the potential of that which is empty. I want you to fill and cultivate. And the word cultivate in the Hebrew has this idea of bringing out its potential. And he's saying, I want you to bring out the potential in all the rest of the earth and fill it. So again, if we're going to be in his image, we're going to be people who go out into the earth and fill it with his image and bring out the potential that's there for his glory. That means, which is such a great thing. I and mean, there's a couple ways you can go with this. Obviously, in all of our jobs and what we do, there is a potential in your job to bring glory to God. There's a potential in your marriage. There's a potential in your friendships. There's potential in our involvement in cities. Any arena of life that you go into, if you're an artist, there's a potential in your art, a musician, a potential in your musicianship to bring out a glory to God. And God's saying, listen, I want you to fill the earth with my glory. Just like I filled these things, fill it by bringing out all the potential that's there. If you're a doctor, come up with new discoveries that bring out the potential of that which can change people's lives. That's the glory of God. It's not competition with the divine healing. It's, the, it's us doing what we're created to do, to bring out the potential of what can be done, to build wonders in architecture, to build wonders in these things. Again, a vision of, an, of the earth being brought into its potential by God. He desired a developed earth. This is what you see the garden being. I want you to bring out that same cultivation everywhere else. Turn the whole earth into a garden. And so again, it brings out its potential in that way. I believe it matters how we treat the environment, guys. I think this stuff gets really practical because we're not bringing out the earth's potential by destroying it. That's not Democrat or Republican. I don't care. This is, God's, this is stewardship of God's creation. This is these kinds of things. We get, this is how we image God out by again doing these things and by filling the earth, by being those who fill. Now this one I just want to take a few seconds on. Uh, this is, well, I'll just obviously end with this one today, but I believe the church is called to be missional. This is the word I'm going to use. Sometimes we've used the word evangelistic. My concern with the word evangelistic is it's become so technical in our thinking that when I say evangelism, we just think in terms of sharing the gospel. Um, I believe the church is supposed to be missional in the sense that it's given a mission of God which includes the sharing of the gospel but is beyond that to the bringing of the kingdom like we talked about in number one. You guys follow that? Just the word I'm using for now. It's just what it is. But I believe the church is called to be missional and I think we don't think of ourselves as missional anymore. I think we don't... Um, missional. So like from the commission. Yeah, I know it's kind of a strange word. I don't even know if it's real but I like it. So I'm using it. Every word we have has been made up by somebody, so I always feel free to make up words. I never feel confined to words that are, actually exist. So, um, so missional, it's, it's, it's this idea of what we should do, we should be, what we've been called to be, that Jesus talked to us about this. Now, what I mean by missional, I mean is it's a way of approaching life. That we believe this, that we are a people who are caught up in the mission of God to fill the earth. And it's God's mission that we represent. And this is, this is the point, this is one of the main points I want to get at the beginning. It all starts with actually following God and doing what he's called to do or called us to do by doing what he's already doing. Kind of like I talked about in the first session. Jesus said this, he said, come follow me, follow me. 
So I'm on a mission. I'm doing something. I want you to follow me as I do it. And I will make you fishers of men. There's all this stuff about the church being more evangelistic. There's all this just about us growing into things. But Jesus says the way we do that is by following him in his mission. I find the church in our day and age is doing the opposite. I think when churches struggle, the thing that we do is we go to polls. And we start to go out there and ask the people that don't go to church, now called the unchurched, and we say, hey, what would make you go to church? What would cause you to go to church? Not be the church, but go to church. Even that phrasing's crazy. But anyway, what would cause you to do that? And then we try to figure out what they'd want, and then we try to produce something to match that. You follow that? This is our approach. Not thinking at all about what Jesus is doing and how he did things. But we're taking our whole orientation from the way the world would want us to be. So we're asking the world, how do you want us to be to make you happy and be part of our meetings? It's basically what we're doing. And then we restructure everything according to that instead of actually looking at what did Jesus actually do? Because he reached people. And he said, actually, if you want to be good at catching people, then follow what I did. Follow what I'm actually about. I want you to follow me as I do these things. Orient yourself to the things I do, the way I did it, the things that I'm about. Because you're going to find his structure is very, very different than the way we do things. I want to tell you a few facts here, guys. Well, let me just say this before I say it. Here's what I'm trying to say. The Bible is clear that God is on a mission and that we're called to be a part of that. So that means that primarily the church, it's not primarily that the church has a mission, it's that the mission has a church. Do you follow that? It's not primarily that the church has a mission. It's that the mission of God has a church to fulfill it. That's how it is. I came here. I'm on a mission and I will build my church. And that's the way it's run. So the mission grips the church. The church doesn't grip the mission. And that's incredibly important because the minute we say the church has a mission, we think we can come up with it. What's our mission as a church? That's a crazy question. I'm sorry. I just think it is. This may be challenging, but I, I think it is. The question is, what is God's mission? Because that defines what we are as a church. We don't try to come up with our, but we think that way. Let's come up with our own personal mission statements. Let's figure out our mission statements. Let's figure these things out. It just reverses the whole scenario. It puts us in charge and God, it's not imaging out God anymore. It's not being the image that fills because God's the one filling and we are just representing him. And so the question isn't, what is our church's mission? The question is, what is God doing? What's his mission? And it grips the church, and the church are those people gripped by it to be the hands and feet of that mission itself. And it changes, it changes entirely how we approach church and how we do it, because we've switched to a different mentality. A missional, if God's on a mission, then that means God is going. He's always going. God is that way. He's that sense of on mission, going somewhere. You see it from the beginning of the Bible to the end. In fact, one of the prophets pictures God's throne with wheels, isn't that hilarious? He's got a wheelchair for a throne. It's like a, it's like a mobile throne. So it just goes wherever he is. He's just moving all the time. He's on mission and he's saying, follow me in it. We have switched to a form of mission that says, we're going to sit back and try to pull the world in. This is what we do. And so we think that the way to reach the world is to have a really, really good Sunday morning meeting. And if we can make it good enough they'll come, right? Does this, I, it's getting really quiet right now. <laughs> but I mean, this is, I'm just going to tell you where I'm at. We think that this is how it's going to work. We think mission is done in meetings and it's destroying, I believe this with all my heart, you can reject everything I'm saying, it's destroying the church. It's not helping the church in any possible way and the church is drastically diminishing right now. 
because we've left the way of Christ and his apostles and we're now doing our own version of it, which is trying to be entertaining and moving enough to, to attract enough people into our meeting. The Bible never said you're going to reach people by having meetings. Right. If you follow how Christ reached people, he went into homes. Amen. He had conversations. He talked to them about things. You find that the church... Well, let me, just, let, me just give you, let me just give you a few facts before I say this, and I'll wrap up with those things. Oh, I, okay, I got done in five minutes. We have, in our generation, here's our boast. We have overseen the biggest decline of Christianity in a region of the world, in the West, America and the Western European, that's ever happened since Jesus came. It's a fact. It's a fact. Our generation, last hundred years, has seen the biggest loss of Christianity in a region of the world ever in the history since Christ came. That should wake us up, guys. I don't know if nothing else is going to wake us up, why that won't wake us up. Let me just give you a few facts about our day and age that has happened. In America in 1955, some of you might have been around then, about 57% of the population participated in a church. Okay, didn't just attend, it was higher who attended, but we're trying to get a real feel of, okay, who actually was participating in the life of a church. It was about 57% in 1957. By 2005, within 50 years, that number dropped to 18%. 18%. That is just shocking. And that's America alone. It's worse in Europe. And that's just America as it's done. Supposedly this happened, and here's the thing. This happened in the exact same time period that we were supposedly coming up with more relevant ways to reach the world. And the more, rele and the more relevant we've become, the quicker the loss has happened. This is, this is statistically just true. Again, whatever you want to say about it. We've been lulled into thinking it hasn't happened because in the same time period, we've had the rise of the megachurch. I'm not being negative on megachurches. I'm just saying this has happened. But the megachurch has statistically shown to not put any dent into the unsaved in any city in which they exist. Every one of those cities with megachurches are losing, rate, losing Christians at a, if, at a fast rate faster than anywhere else. All the megachurches have done have pulled from all the other churches into their church or the kids of people who want something more entertaining because they're used to a generation of people who want everything catered to them. They're no longer happy to be this way in their parents' church. I'm not saying that's good or bad because I don't think the parents' church is doing well either. Is the fact that they then leave that to go to something more trendy and cool, but it doesn't actually cause people to be born again because there is actually something different about in a meeting even those people who walk the aisles, a powerful meeting with music playing, raise your hand, no commitment, just say you want Jesus and he'll forgive you, versus sitting over coffee with Zacchaeus and saying, yeah, you need to completely change your life if you want to be part of this. <laughs> how many people know that's two different invitations? And how many people know that this is going to produce someone that says, I'll sell what I have and give half of it to the poor? And this is going to produce someone that says, I'm happy to respond in this moment, but I don't plan on following through on any of this stuff. There's a big difference between the two, isn't there? So again, within this, because we've switched the way that we've approached these types of things. The millennial generation, is, which is the one we can measure now because it's just coming into its own, is leaving Christianity in mass. Here's a fact. Hindus, Muslims, and the Jewish religions all have higher retention rates of the next generation than Christians. Meaning if you are a Christian, you are the most likely to leave your faith. If you're Hindu, Muslim, or Jewish, you're more likely to keep it. Isn't that shocking? Again, it's shocking because it's happened in the same generation that said, we've figured out really cool new ways to reach the next generation. 
and they're not doing it is the facts of the situation. That this has happened in which the church has grown, it's filed miserably. Now let me just quote you a few other stats just to see maybe who we should look at. In AD 33-ish, about, after Jesus' death and resurrection, there was, by the most positive estimate, maybe 500 followers of Christ, maybe. Jesus appeared to 500. That's the biggest number in the New Testament before Pentecost. There were 500 of them. By AD 100, that had gone from 500 to 25,000 Christians. That's a pretty good growth rate, isn't it? From 100 to 310, and for all of you church historians, this is pre-Constantine. Because I know the very next day will be, oh, it's because of Constantine. This is before Constantine, okay? Before Constantine, the church had gone from 25,000 to 20 million by secular historian estimates. It went from 500 to 20 million. That is shocking. That is incredible growth. And they did it radically different than we did. They did this. Let me, let's just be clear on some stats. They did this while Christianity was illegal. They did this when they didn't have a single building. They didn't own a building. They didn't own a church building like this. First church building that was owned that we know of is in about 200, and that was a house that they bought. And so they worked, operated totally in houses in what they did things. They did not have any professionalized form of leadership. In fact, all of their elders, I'm not arguing that they should be, I'm just telling you facts. They were unpaid because it wasn't a job. It, was no, it wasn't a career path for anybody. Your apostolic leaders were supported by the church because they were on mission planting churches and helping to organize this. Um, but again, it wasn't a career path for anybody. They did not have any seminaries. They didn't have any commentaries. They didn't have any youth groups. They didn't have any seeker sensitive. They didn't have any bands with, with let up you know, stages and with microphones and with any of this kind of stuff that we think we have to have if we're going to reach the world. And this is even, they didn't even have a Bible. They just had the letters that they were passing around. It was actually difficult to join the church in their day and age if you wanted to be a part of it. And somehow they went from this number to that number. Let me call you a little bit different number just to give us some humility. The church in China, I know some of you guys have served in China. These are the stats I have from this. That in the time of Mao Zedong, when he took over, there were estimated to be about 2 million Christians in China. The way of doing church in China at that time was mostly based on the Western style. Build buildings, try to attract people in, okay, to come to these buildings. The Westerners thought that Mao Zedong was going to wipe out Christianity. They thought it would be gone um, because all the Western missionaries had to pull out and they didn't know how to do church like we do because we're so good at it. Um, so Mao launched a cultural revolution to try to wipe out Christianity in China. And the main thing it did is it made the true Christians abandon the Western model that they had inherited from us and to develop a model that looked like the New Testament church. So this is parallel to the U.S., Okay. The U.S. is developing this model that they're going even further with, build buildings to try to attract people in. China is rejecting it. Same time period in history, 50s to now, right? In the 80s, when the bamboo curtain was lifted, everyone expected the church to be decimated, but they'd found out that it had grown. And this is, again, these stats come from the Times. So this is a secular magazine. I'm, so I'm, I don't, there's no exaggeration in this, I don't think, because it's secular people saying the stats. The church had grown to 60 million. So they went from 2 million to 60 million. At the exact time, time, we're going from 60 to 2. And they're doing church completely different than the way we do it. Again, theirs looks like the New Testament, where it went from 500 to 20 million. Ours looks like the, well, something else. We'll say that. We'll not say that. And then again, according to the Bureau at the time in Beijing, that number swelled the next few years to 80 million and is still growing. And it's probably way beyond that now from when those things were done. 
I think that that means the church is in a place where we have to admit in the West, we're not filling the way we're supposed to fill. And I believe it's because we've changed the way the New Testament approached mission. I believe we've come up with our own mission and we've tried to pull people into a building and it's about time for the church to admit that Sunday morning as a means of trying to reach the world is a failure. And it was never God's intention. Am I against the Sunday morning? No. Bring them in on Sunday and equip the church to go out and reach the world in their homes and in their lives. Because that's where we're going to reach the world. It's not going to be here. That's what they're doing. Again, if all of a sudden, if all of a sudden we lost all our buildings and we lost all this stuff, how would the church change? Because that seems to be the best thing for the church in every nation that exists. They suddenly become missional in the way the New Testament church was. All right, I need to close. Let me just list for you really quickly some characteristics of the way the church filled the earth that'll help us image God out. And number one is they lived from a missional mindset. Okay, I'm just going to whip through these guys. We'll have to develop another time. They lived from a missional mindset. It wasn't a come to us. It was a go to them. Go into their homes. Eat with them. That's what Jesus was claimed to be a drunkard and someone who ate with sinners. <laughs> this was his, one of his big accusations. And so he was out there with them, eating with them in their environment, talking to them. Uh, you know, we can have a great meeting, but it's going to be a much better conversation when you ask someone who's unsaved over for a meal. I've noticed in my in own environment, I've, I've, since I've been trying to just meet with my neighbors, have them for meals, talk with them, I'm, I find my opportunities to witness skyrocket. And I don't even have to try to create them. They just ask me because they just naturally talk about these things. They just, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, and then these things get brought up. And then it's funny because I'll find them inquisitive. It's like it says in the Bible, be ready to give an answer. Amen. And what's so funny is no one's asking us anything. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Because we're not there where the questions are. It's sitting in Starbucks talking to people about things that are completely unrelated where they finally are like, so do you really believe there's a God? And then all of a sudden, wow, I get a chance to witness to this person. And I get to talk to him about it. And I'm not the one forcing the question. The funny thing is when I force the question, they're often immediately resistant. But when I'm just with them, like Jesus was, they just come up with really great questions and they talk about things. So again, there was, they're there from a missional mindset. Go to them, not try to pull them in. Number two, they were focused on the lordship of Christ. Jesus has preached as Savior about three times in Acts. He's preached as Lord 90 sometimes. 90 sometimes. I'm not saying Christ isn't your Savior because he is, but in our day and age, we preach the gospel of Christ as Savior, not as Lord. They preach the gospel of Christ primarily as Lord, and Savior is how you come into that Lordship. So we need to change our gospel to represent that, which the Bible actually says, this Jesus who you crucified, God has now made Lord and King. You got to come to terms with that. How do I come to terms with that? Well, you need him to save you. And you need to start to live under that kingdom, right ordering of things. So we need to emphasize lordship over savior. I believe that with all my heart. Three, they emphasize the gifted body of Christ. We've become a dependent culture because of Sunday morning. Bring him to the pastor. He'll do a good job of preaching the gospel to him. That's not how the early church did it. You share. Pastor, equip them to share it in their settings. And you share the gospel with the people that have relationships. Every study that's ever been done shows that the primary reason people give their life to Christ and start to follow him is because of a relationship. They might do it on a Sunday morning preach, but it's the relationship that got them there. So again, emphasize the gifted body of Christ. We need to get it down from our gifted people into the gifted people that are in the, in the pews, so to speak. We need to start to decentralize and mobilize out there. Now, number four, they defined community by mission. You follow that? If we aim at community and try to do mission, I think we're going to miss and we'll fail. But if we aim at mission and develop a community around that, we'll get both. Jesus built community with the disciples on mission. 
There's a certain kind of community that comes for those who have been through war together that's unlike anything else because the mission together binds them together. I think a lot of times we don't have community in church because we're not out there doing anything together. And it's in the doing of together out there, not in a meeting in here, out there, that it starts to build community to one another. It's, it's the fact that they used to meet in homes and they would have a meal together and they would take that meal. This is what they did. All the leftovers out to the poor in their neighborhoods and feed all the poor. And doing that mission, they started to invite those poor then to, meet, to, to their homes, sorry, not to meetings. They started to build these kind of relationships. It's what the New Testament did and it built a sense of togetherness. Number five, they used their homes as their central building. Our homes are our place of escape. They're our castle. I think that needs to change in the church. We need to start seeing our homes as the primary place in which to do mission. They used to invite strangers in. It's what the word hospitality means. I know we use that for hosting other Christians, but it's not what it meant in the New Testament. It actually meant taking in strangers. And we've got all the reasons not to do this. I mean, I'm going through this with my own family. I've got young kids. I can't take in a stranger. What if he's a molester? What if he's this? What if he's that? These are my struggles right now. But I'm looking at the Bible and says, this should be my strength. I should be hospitable. I should be people that take them into my home, help people. And it's huge, isn't it, guys? But I'm just telling you, this is the difference between us and them. Growth in the church happened on the edges, not in the center. It's Philip going down into the city and preaching the gospel and people getting born again. It wasn't the big men on top, the apostles deciding, let's go. It was growth happening here, there, the other place. And they're just trying to keep up with it. Most of the time, they're like, hey, Peter and John, you got to get down here. People are getting bored. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get down there. Now we got to get over here because, again, it's just happening. Okay, there's some believers in Antioch. We got to get over there. There's just all this stuff happening. Okay, Paul, you need to get to Rome because they need to be strengthened in the gospel. There is, again, this growth that's happening everywhere else instead of being dependent on the leaders to bring growth. Um, Number seven, they had strong, adaptive leaders and responsive people. They had people that responded strongly and responded to everything God was doing. The leaders adapted as it went and they made changes as it went instead of being solidified in their way. And we need, a, again, a really responsive people. I wish I could talk about that. I'm way over time, sorry. And finally, the last one is the supernatural flowed through their lives. They lived in the supernatural every day of the week. That oftentimes they lived out there. The supernatural wasn't something to do in their meetings. It was something to do out there in creation. Now they had them in their meetings as well. Don't deny that. I think some churches never see it out there because they never allow it in here to learn how to do it. But in here is where we learn how to do it, some of these things to do it out there. We learn how to bring a prophetic word in order to bring it out there. That too often what I'm saying is going on is we're trying to train people to live in the wild by keeping them in captivity. And you can't train an animal to live in the wild by keeping it in captivity. And our Christians don't have a faith that can handle the world out there because they're just living in captivity. And they're sharing their faith in captivity and they're prophesying in captivity and they're praying in captivity. Instead of, hey, let's learn how to do these things out there. And so they just walked in the supernatural naturally. They just healed the sick. They just saw miracles happen. Most all the miracles in the New Testament happened out there. Okay, sorry to rush through those last thing. I got myself a little lost on the first one there. So, but anyway, those are two other ways. So we start, what does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, we see, first of all, God's ordering things. So we are those that bring our lives and society into right order. Second of all, God is on mission filling things. So we make the mission of our life to fill the earth with his image, just as we are made into his image in the first one. And then we'll look at the third one tonight, okay?